you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and open them to the book of First Kings. First King, the book of Kings in the, the Hebrew Scriptures. It's all one book, Kings, uh, but we have it divided in our Bible into First and Second Kings. And so we're back in our series that we began back in, um, we'll say March, going through the entire Bible. One book at a time. It's kind of an ambitious goal, but we've already made it to First Kings, so I'm feeling pretty good about that. And uh, we're not going to read through the entire text this morning, uh, but we will read through parts of it as we go. And a couple slides to follow along with here this morning as well. Um, I do realize that it is hard kind of just coming back right into it uh, after being in the Psalms throughout the summer, so we may have lost a little bit of the context, and uh, I'm not going to spend a ton of time catching us up, but I will uh, take a couple minutes to try to do that this morning. Uh, before we left off, we finished with the book of Second Samuel, and we had just kind of gotten into that time in Israel's history when kings uh, began to be a thing, when kings were beginning to rule in the promised land. Uh, if you remember, it was not God's desire that Israel would have its own king. Uh, instead, Israel looked around at all the nations and they saw they didn't have a king, even though God, Yahweh, was to be their king. And so they said, we want a king. They demanded of Samuel, please give us a king. And so God really granted them their requests in order for them to see just how badly they were going to need a better king, a perfect king himself to be their king. And so the first king from that we learned about in 1 Samuel was King Saul. And King Saul turned out to be one evil dude. And he turned his heart far from God. He even tried to kill the heir to the throne. He tried to kill David. And eventually the world all came crashing down on himself. And tragically, he ended up killing himself in battle. That was 1 Samuel. And then we looked at, at David, and we had this really optimistic outlook. This was a man after God's own heart. This might be that king of Israel that everyone was waiting for. He meditated on God's word day and night throughout his life. We have the Psalms because, largely because of King David. And yet, still we were met with disappointment. We saw with his fall into adultery, and even murder, just how deceitful our own hearts can be. And how it's not a King David that we ultimately need to lead us, but we need a perfect, sinless king. We need the one who was the promised son of David, who was going to rule on the throne of Israel forever. Who would this son be? That was 2 Samuel. Perhaps it would be his son, Solomon. Solomon was the unlikely son born from David's sin with Bathsheba. Yet he was the one to whom was promised the kingdom and the one who was charged with the building of a more permanent temple for God. Would Solomon be that promised offspring who would sit on the throne of Israel forever? That really sets the stage for us for the books of the kings. And first king is going first kings is going to span the whole reign of King Solomon. It's going to take us through that tearing apart that division there of the two of of the kingdom of Israel into two separate kingdoms because of their sin because they abandoned God and it's also going to cover most of the ministry of someone you may have heard of before the prophet Elijah most of the ministry of Elijah is accounted for in the book of 1 Kings and really those are the two main characters that I want to spend most of our time focusing on this morning until we get to the very end. And there's a, another main character that I want us to focus on. But for now, I want us to focus on a king and a prophet. And this sermon is entitled Kings and Prophets. King Solomon and the prophet Elijah. 
And the framework for us as we move through 1 Kings together this morning is this. Learn the lessons, learn the lesson of the kings and learn the lesson of the prophets. Two big lessons to learn this morning. The lesson of the kings and the lesson of the prophets. First, the lesson of the kings. If you want to write this down. Faithfulness to God brings blessing. So think of David's faithfulness to God up to this point. Faithfulness to God brings blessing. Don't let God's blessing lead to unfaithfulness. So faithfulness to God is going to bring blessing in your life. Don't let God's blessings lead you to unfaithfulness. Just before David died on his deathbed, this is what he commanded his son Solomon. He said, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. I'm about to die. Be strong and show yourself a man. And keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies. As it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. You just think of somebody as great as King David, and you're in the hospital room, so to speak, today, and he's giving you this charge. It might have some kind of effect on your life, I would think. He goes on, he says, That the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So if you will pay attention to my word, if you will heed my word, there will be a king on the throne of Israel from your line forever. And Solomon, for the most part, starts out on the right foot. We should be encouraged by Solomon's response. After there is this kind of attempted coup by a different son of David, Solomon is eventually established as the rightful heir of the throne. And although he does enter into a marriage with an Egyptian princess right away, which I don't think he was supposed to do, Generally speaking, Solomon is presented to us as having a heart to please God. In 1 Kings 3.1, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David, his father. And before Solomon is ever able to build the temple, God appears to him. And God says this, says this to Solomon. He says, ask of me what you want, and I will give it to you. You imagine God asking that, ask whatever you want and I will give it to you. The one who has authority to give you everything, I will give it to you. And it's kind of a test, I think, to see where Solomon's heart was, where Solomon's heart would go. Israel has become this, by this point, a prominent world power. Solomon and all of Israel seems to be on good terms with other world powers that they once fought with like Egypt. There is rest from war at last. First and second Samuel, it was war after war after war, and now there is peace at last. Solomon has the blessing of his father, the great King David, and yet what does he ask God for? Wisdom. I hear many of you saying it. I think this should be instructive for us this morning who have experienced the blessings of God upon our lives. He asks for wisdom. He feels the great weight of responsibility upon him to lead the chosen people of God, and he asks for wisdom. Why? Because he wants to be able to discern good from evil so that he can govern such a great and numerous nation well. It's really incredible with everything he had going for him that this was his humble request, and God gives it to him. God grants him his request. This is an appropriate prayer that any of us can pray at any time if you feel yourself in circumstances that are way over your head. James 1.5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, 
Let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. I can't tell you how many times I've gotten myself into situations where I felt in over my head and I just worried, 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 catastrophized, catastrophized, catastrophized until maybe somebody came along and said, well, have you prayed about it? Maybe, I don't know, ask God for his wisdom to help you. That's a good reminder for us this morning. Solomon's name to this day is associated with wisdom. His great wisdom fills the pages of our Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes. In 1 Kings 4.32, it says that Solomon spoke 3,000 Proverbs. I imagine these are the ones recorded. 3,000 Proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He was kind of a wise, wise guy, wise king. And no doubt God used God-fearing Solomon's request to bless Solomon and to bless his people for generations to come. And for any of you who read the Bible today, we're still being blessed by the wisdom of Solomon. So continuing to fear God, Solomon does exactly as was promised by God. He builds the great temple in Jerusalem. That representative permanent, or at least more permanent dwelling place of God. This was the pinnacle of Israel's influence as a nation. It was the pinnacle of of God's blessing being upon the people of Israel. No expense was spared in the building of this temple. This would be for many years the place of pilgrimage, the holy mountain, Mount Zion, like Chris preached on a couple weeks ago, which would be remembered long after the destruction of this temple 400 years later. And if you were to read chapters 5 through 9, you would read of the celebratory account of the building of this temple with all of its furnishings and the celebration that would accompany the grand opening of the temple. And all of this is capped off by Solomon's prayer of dedication and a whole lot of sacrifices. If you turn to 1 Kings Chapter 8, you can read Solomon's prayer of dedication. But even Solomon recognizes that in building this great house for God, that it's not like it's going to contain God's glory itself. This is, this is a representative of the place where we will come to acknowledge that he is the God of the universe. Solomon says in verse 27, Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to this plea. O Lord, my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, my name shall be there. He goes on and he says, if if man sins against his neighbor and is, is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before your altar in this house, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the guilty, but rewarding him according to his righteousness. When your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you, And if they turn again to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave to their fathers. When heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray towards this place, hear their prayer. If there is famine in the land, if they turn towards this place, Hear their prayer. And he goes on and on and on. That Israel would always acknowledge the name of the Lord in prayer. And God says to him in chapter 9, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked, 
with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules. Then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. As I promised David your father saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But there's a condition here. If you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them and the house that I have consecrated for my name. I will cast out of my sight and Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples, and this house will become a heap of ruins. Faithfulness to God brings blessing. Don't let God's blessing lead to unfaithfulness. Just like Solomon, we today are heirs of many of God's blessings upon a faithful people throughout generation after generation. Did you know that if you are here this morning, it is likely because of the blessing of somebody telling you about eternal life in Jesus? On a more basic level of our physical needs, if you have health care access today, it's because of God's blessing through the church. Hospitals came about through the work of the church. If you have a college degree or if you've ever benefited from someone who has a college degree, institutions of education, those blessings have been made possible by God through the work of his people, the church. The freedom that we have to worship God today, the freedom that we have to be able to do pretty much anything we want for a career, all kinds of charities. I could go on and on about all the blessings of God that we share in, that we partake in today, many of which other people throughout the world do not still enjoy. But what do we so often do when we are either given these blessings, wealth, or we're granted restored health, or we're given freedom? We know that in those desperate moments when we don't have it, we cry out to God and we plead with Him, please, Lord, Save me, rescue me, free me. And then maybe when we get it, we, we shout and we celebrate and we talk about how great God is and we say, what an amazing God we serve and we put it all over social media. We tell everybody about it. But then it becomes a little more of something we're used to. We begin to take it for granted. We no longer give the credit to the God who gave us these many blessings. We take for granted the many mercies that we've been shown, and we often forget where it comes from, and we stop seeking the one we once sought when we were in desperate circumstances. And what we learn through 1 Kings is that what Solomon did next would become a tragic tale of warning to all who come into the great blessings from God. God's blessing upon Israel did not go unnoticed by the surrounding nations. Solomon would have royalty from all over the world coming in to observe his impressive kingdom, including the great queen of Sheba. She was so impressed with Solomon's wisdom that she declared praise for Yahweh. How great of a God who would bless Solomon like this. The nations were paying him such great tribute in order to maintain alliances that at one point, Solomon's annual income, get this, 1 Kings 10, 14, his annual income was 666 talents of gold. That's $1.2 billion in today's money. Now, biblical scholars will debate whether the 666 there is what is referred to later in Revelation or whether this is just some kind of coincidence. But I would say correlation or coincidence, the illustration just seems to be dripping with meaning here. 
666, right? The incomplete number, the incomplete number, the incomplete number. God's perfection is seven, right? In the Bible, God's perfection, the number representing that is seven. Falling short, falling short, falling short. You can have all the gold in the world. You can have all the gold of Solomon, all the wealth, all the wisdom of Solomon, and yet still fall short of God in every single way that matters. As Jesus puts it, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? Some probably thought Solomon gained the whole world. If he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul. This is what it tells us later about Solomon. King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And all the kings of the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Every one of them brought his present, articles of silver and of gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses and mules, so much year by year. And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen. Another place says 40,000 stalls or maybe 4,000 stalls for horses, whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. And then it says a few verses down, he had 700 wives. 700 wives. Now, a lot of you are probably scratching your heads. That's just stupid. But he had 700 wives who were princesses and then 300 concubines on top of that. We know the old adage, right? Mo money, mo problems. Mo money, mo problems. That comes from the Bible, indirectly. Look back. You don't have to turn there right now. But if you looked back, and I think Chris mentioned this. This goes really well with that sermon on going to Zion. Because that's where, where our hearts need to be directed to right now. If you go back to Deuteronomy 17, which was the warning to future kings. So way back in Moses, before they ever had kings, there was this warning. If you have a king, don't let him be like this. And it says, remember all the things that Solomon had. He must not acquire many horses must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to egypt where did those horses come from it says most of them came from egypt in order to acquire uh, many horses and uh, since the lord has said to you you shall never return that way again don't go back to egypt that's where i rescued you from don't go back to your slavery and he shall not acquire get this many wives for himself. Why? Lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Solomon checks the box on every single one of these. Six, six, six. All the things of the world, and yet his heart would turn from God. If you look in 1 Kings chapter 11, 1 Kings chapter 11, what does the heading say at the top? There, right before chapter 11 starts. Solomon turns from the Lord. He had all these blessings that came from God, right? And yet Solomon turned from the Lord. He loved his many wives. He loved his hordes of horses. He loved his gobs of gold and silver, all to the loss of his first love. He turned to other gods. It says he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He even built high places for foreign gods and established a means by which people from other nations could worship their own foreign gods. His heart completely turned from the Lord. There's this illustration that sticks in my head from when I was a little kid that my dad used to include. It seemed like in every single sermon... (laughs) I know that couldn't be true, but almost every time I heard him preach, I feel like he was sharing this illustration. And to this day, if you go in my dad's office, he has all these stuffed camels all over his office. People bring him camels because of this illustration of the camel's nose. Do you know the illustration of the camel's nose? 
The Arabian man is traveling in the desert with his camel and there comes this sandstorm so he puts up his tent for the night and he's safe from the storm and he's warm and comfortable but his camel sand is just beating all over his face he says can i just can you just let me stick my nose in your tent you guys have heard some of this right can you just let me stick my nose in the tent and he says okay you can stick your nose in the tent before you know it the camel has convinced the man to allow him to have his entire body in the tent and the tent is just depending on the version you read just fallen over and the man is now outside of the tent in the storm it may be for us the allure i don't know what it is for you but it may be for you the allure of making a ton of money it may be the allure of getting rich if you got rich you would have everything you would ever need it may be for many the allure of fitting in or being respected it may be the false placement of security in this world's institutions it may just be the filling of our schedules with so many different things to distract us from what is most important think of all the things that the world tells you you have to do today to fit in to succeed and all the different plates you pile upon yourself till your hands have nothing left to receive from god it may be chasing images on the internet it may be chasing various kinds of thrills or highs it may just be dulling our minds and trying to forget our problems through endless amusement and entertainment but do we rarely ever think when we invite some of these things into our lives when we begin to court sin just a little bit or invite a little idol here and an idol there into our home are we really ever thinking you know this is probably going to rot my soul this is probably going to lead to the downfall of my children i remember this commercial growing up partnership for a drug-free america again i think it scared the heck out of me when it came to touching drugs and it was it was the boy who was running on the track i want to be a track star when i grew up and the ballerina who was twirling i want to be a ballerina no one ever said they want to be a junkie when they grow up i can't tell you how much that scared me but we don't think like that we don't think if i just invite this little thing into my life that it's going to destroy me yet james 1 15 each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death and we see this play out in solomon's life as adversaries are raised up surrounding him from everywhere he was at peace there was there was peace with other nations now adversaries are popping up everywhere there is even adversary within his own household his own servant rises up to try to take the throne and because of israel's choice because of solomon's choice to forsake god to invite the foreign gods in and follow them here's what god says to his servant jeroboam i am about to tear the kingdom from the hand of solomon i will give you ten tribes but he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. Because they have forsaken me and worshiped, these are other gods, they've worshiped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, Milcom, the god of the Ammonites, and they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight and keeping my statutes and my rules as David his father did and if you could turn that slide Sammy one slide shows what happens next we have Solomon and then the tearing apart of the kingdom Israel and Judah instead of one unified whole are now two kingdoms ten tribes to the north one to the south it's, this is, is something that is probably a little confusing when you read the Bible because sometimes you read Judah and you're like, what's this Judah, Judah, Judah? And it seems like Judah is Israel. Well, Judah, for all intents and purposes, after this point, is Israel. 
They are the chosen people of God. Israel, the northern kingdom, still gets called Israel for a while until it completely dissolves. But Judah is that remnant of Israel that God continues to bless. And and the line through which Jesus, the royal line through which Jesus eventually comes. But the kingdom is split into two. And it gets so bad that Jeroboam, the one who ends up being king in the north with those ten tribes... He's afraid because he knows how important Jerusalem is. He knows how important the temple is. He's afraid that the tribes that he is over are eventually just going to be drawn back to Jerusalem and then he'll he'll lose his kingdom. So what's his solution? He says, I'm going to build two golden calves. Now, does anything good ever happen when you build calves in the Bible? No. Had he not read this story, I have no idea, but he builds two golden calves, one on the northern end and one on the southern end, and he sets up his whole new worship system according to his own ideas, trying to mimic what God has established. He says, here you go, you have two calves, now you don't need to go to Jerusalem anymore, the place where God's glory dwells. Should it be any surprise that with beginnings like this, the northern kingdom did not thrive. And I think there's an application here before I move on. Um, you know, this, these things happen really subtly over time. You know, there are churches today. I was at this church in um, Newport when I was there for my training. Uh, this church was the first, uh, that's the second oldest church in the country. A faithful beacon of the gospel for many years, a champion of religious freedom. They had gotten to a point where in the 2000s, there was somebody preaching from the pulpit that did not crack open the Bible once and wanted to talk about all of the social issues of the day, but did not mention the name of Jesus one time. Now, if you would have maybe been a bystander and you walked into the church, it looks like a church and there's a guy who gets up and preaches and people sing songs. It was all just a really, really bad imitation. That church had completely apostatized. Now, gratefully to this day, there is somebody there preaching the gospel by by God's grace. They were able to, to bring revitalization to the church. But it began with people kind of imitating, but not really want, wanting to worship the one true God. Now pay close attention to how the downfall of Israel proceeded. Remember, it was wealth and blessings from God originally, but that wealth would end up becoming the object of worship. Not the giver of those things, but the wealth itself became the object of worship for Solomon. Riches and wisdom from God became a thing to flaunt and a means to court the favor of other nations. And when this drew in the awe and the favor of other nations, Solomon came to love the attention and the power more than God himself. And it led to division and disunity and jealousy and conflict, and it always will. Don't be deceived. It will always lead to division and disunity and jealousy and conflict when we take our eyes off of King Jesus. And then Jeroboam comes along a generation later and he says, hey, let's still worship God, but let's do it on our own terms. Let's do it not the way that he directs, but the way that I've come up with. And then there's a generation after that and it becomes, you know, we don't really need to just worship God. There's this whole group of gods around us that are really good too. Let's include them. And then a generation later, it becomes, you know, we really hate those people who only want to worship Yahweh. They are so close-minded. Let's kill them. Let's kill their prophets. This is the progression of the book of 1 Kings. Zero out of 20 kings. You have some of the kings listed there that take us through the end of the book of 1 Kings. Zero out of 20 kings in the northern kingdom in Israel are described as good. That's compared to eight out of 20 kings in Judah. 
These 20 kings in Israel actually, it says, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord until eventually that whole kingdom is overthrown and dissolved altogether. Those small little turns of the heart away from God with Solomon put Israel on a trajectory that resulted in a king about 50 years later, a king who is described like this in 1 Kings 16. Ahab, Ahab, yes, King Ahab, the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Think how this book started with Solomon building the temple of Yahweh. And here's a guy erecting an altar for Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. It only took 50 years to get from David to Ahab. To get from wanting to be faithful to God's word to the blatant rejection of it. The killing of the Lord's prophets in exchange for the prophets of Baal. First Kings offers us a sobering lesson about what such a trajectory leads to. Think about it like this this morning. For those of you who have kids in the home, if your children chase harder and pursue more deeply what they see your hearts fixed on today, and I'm not just talking about because you're gathered here on Sunday morning, but what your hearts are truly fixed on today, if your children go after those things harder and more deeply than you, what will they be worshiping 20 years from now? Where will their lives be invested? And we can apply this to everyone in the church with the younger generation of the church. They are watching, they are listening, they are imitating, they are following. What are they going to be worshiping 20 years from now if they follow you? Don't let the blessing you enjoy today because of the many faithful generations before, lead you to become the unfaithful generation. Parents, church members, everyone, don't let that be true of us. And that brings us to the second lesson, the lesson of the prophets. All this while, as Israel was on this downward spiral, was there anyone? who was faithful to give a warning? Was there any voice crying out for them to change their course? Was there anyone pleading for the repentance of Israel? Yes, God raises up the prophet Elijah. The lesson of the prophets is this. Talked about the lesson of the kings. The lesson of the prophets is this. God's word is rarely popular often costly, but always right. Say that again. God's word is rarely popular, often costly, but always right. Go to that next slide, Sammy. I don't know if you can see this. Have you ever seen this picture before for those of you who can see it? A lot of people in the crowd doing the Heil Hitler There's one man who's standing there with his arms folded. This is August Landmesser. He is a very lonely German among a crowd of thousands who refuse to bow the knee to Hitler. Why is he alone in this picture? Because it was not a popular thing to do. It was not in vogue. In fact, it was very costly for him to do this. It eventually would cost him his life. How do we perceive him? How how does even the world perceive this guy today? He's a hero, right? He's the one on the right side of history. God's word is rarely popular, 
often costly, but always right. We desperately, friends, listen to me, we desperately need to have our ears attuned to the prophetic word in our lives. Prophecy, when we think of prophecy, we often think of something predictive, right? Somebody who's telling the future. But you know, the primary mode of prophecy in the scripture was not so much predictive as it was prescriptive. Often what the prophets did was they simply reminded people of their first love. Remember your God. Remember who is worthy of all worship. Remember the one who saves. Our introduction to the prophet Elijah comes in the wake of Ahab's program of desecration. When there appeared to be no one left who was still faithfully following God's word. Imagine feeling completely alone like this. Like we have, some people might call this a small church, and yet we have like 60 people with us today who are like-minded saying, yes, press on towards Jesus. Imagine feeling like you are the only one, not just in the church, not just in the city, in the entire region who is still faithful to God. Imagine how hard that must have been. And his first job is he's going to have to deliver bad news to King Ahab. He's going to have to deliver a word of God's judgment. There's a a drought. There's a famine coming upon the land because you have turned your heart from the Lord. So Elijah delivers that message and then God tells him to head east. And while Israel is suffering through this drought and famine, God miraculously provides for and preserves his prophet, which is another lesson. If you are following the prophetic word, if you are remaining true to God's word, you will be preserved by God forever. Even if it costs you your own life, you will be preserved by God forever. Now, you will want to go home. We don't have time this morning. You'll want to go home and read about Elijah being fed by a bird and this bottomless jar of flour and the resurrection of a widow's son. Elijah is carried along over and over again by God to proclaim his word, to plead for repentance and to carry out his will. In this section of 1 Kings, we have what is often considered a favorite Bible story. It's one of my favorite Bible stories. It's the story of Elijah's showdown with the prophets of the false gods of Baal. Anybody enjoy that story? Deb is laughing there on the front because she loves it so much, Lynn, too. The showdown with the prophets of Baal. Get this picture. 450 prophets of Baal. Why are there no prophets of God? Because Jezebel had them all killed. So there's only prophets of Baal to go up against one prophet of God, Elijah. And Elijah challenges them. He says, let's see whose God really is the true God. And he calls them all together and he actually asks them this. I love this question in 1 Kings 18. How long will you go on limping between two different opinions? If the Lord, Yahweh, is God, follow him. But if Baal then follow him. And whichever one is going to answer by lighting this sacrifice on fire, that's the one we will know is the one true God. So the prophets of Baal, they they gather around this altar with this sacrifice, and from morning to noon, they cry out to their God to show his power. And you gotta love Elijah's response. Cry aloud, for he's a God. Either he's musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. All day long they cried out, but no one answered. And then Elijah says, I'm going to let God show off his power so that everyone can know, everyone can see. He doesn't simply just call on God to answer by fire, but just so they can be sure, he has them pour a lot of water all over this altar to be sure it has to be from God. And he says, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. This is a great prayer to pray when you feel 
persecuted, when you feel surrounded by those who don't share your love for God. The fire came and it burned up everything, including, it says, it licked up all the water around the altar. And when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, Yahweh, he is God. He is God. The prophetic word of God is rarely popular. 450 prophets of Baal, one lone prophet prophet of Yahweh. The word of God is often costly. Elijah would live his most of his life as a nomad, not knowing where he was to go next, not knowing where his next meal would come from. After this incident, he becomes afraid because of Jezebel's threat on his life, and he runs for his life. It was costly. But as we see borne out over and over again through the scriptures, God's word is always right. God's word is always sure. Elijah would be considered one of the greatest prophets in Israel's history. He would later appear next to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. But just consider everything he had to endure in this ministry. Even after all of this, Ahab would not repent yet. He eventually did repent, and that's probably another sermon for another time. That's why we don't give up hope proclaiming and holding out repentance for even the the hardest sinners around us. But as I said, Jezebel would call for a bounty on Elijah's head. Elijah was certain that he must be the only faithful one left in Israel, although there were actually 7,000 in various places who did not bow the knee to Baal. Yet God would sustain him. God would preserve him. God would preserve a faithful remnant in Judah. And the book ends with the succession of the kingdom of Judah on through King Jehoshaphat, who did what was right in the sight of the Lord. There had always been a remnant. There has always been a remnant to this day of the faithful, holding out hope that God is not finished with his people. The story of kings then has these two lessons. The lesson of the kings. Don't let the blessings you enjoy today because of past faithfulness be the source of tomorrow's unfaithfulness. And remember that remaining true to the prophetic word can be lonely, costly, but it's always the right thing to do. And so I want to close this morning by focusing on another king, the king, the king of kings, and the prophet of all prophets. Jesus is referred to as prophet, priest, and king, the one to whom we should look to in order to remain faithful, and the one who we should look to in order to walk in righteousness. We know that these books don't just contain isolated stories that someone compiled to make a holy book. This is one grand narrative. And remember, it's all driving to a single point. It's all driving us to faith in Jesus. If you were to turn to the book of Matthew, you would see in the royal genealogy, some of these names, the kings of Judah coming down from Solomon to get to King Jesus. King Jesus, the promised offspring of David who would sit on the throne of Israel forever. Turns out it wasn't Solomon. It was someone else. Solomon was a type. Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived until he wasn't. If you go to that, that's the slide right there. Jesus, king and prophet. Solomon's sin ultimately corrupted all of these great things. His kingdom was torn in two. They would endure countless wars, and even the great temple would be brought to ruins just as God said it would. But this is the really exciting part. Consider this new king that we are here worshiping today, King Jesus. While Solomon was wise, Jesus is called in Scripture the wisdom of God. While Solomon built that grand temple that was to remain forever, Jesus didn't have to because Jesus was the temple, the dwelling place of God among men. And he says, if you tear down this temple, I will just build it up in three days, speaking of his resurrection. That temple 
is still living to this day in Christ Jesus. While Solomon drew nations in to see his wealth, Jesus, when he was lifted up on the cross, drew all people to himself. Not just the wealthy, not just the princely. And look at how he did it. Not by amassing wealth, but actually by spurning wealth. He came lowly in a manger, and yet people, wise men from the east, came to worship him. He exchanged the war horse for a humble donkey. He exchanged a crown of gold for a crown of thorns. Why? Not just to give us all the material blessings of the world. He was too good to just give us that. He was too good to withhold the best. Jesus gave us eternal life. Jesus gave us the redemption of our sinful souls. This should tell you something. Don't trust in chariots. Don't trust in riches. Don't trust in whatever you think it is that's going to give you fulfillment because Jesus, the King of Kings, spurned all those things in order to give you something far better. Think about Jesus the prophet. God's very word in the flesh. What was his message? His message was simple. Repent and believe in me for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom that all of us need, the eternal kingdom where there is life forevermore. Even the Jewish officers, the Jewish leaders would say, never spoke a man like this before. And yet he was rejected by his own people prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. He was often alone. He paid the ultimate cost, lonely, costly. But was he right? Was Jesus right? Did his word prove true in the end? Friends, we're here this morning celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the confirmation of his word for all time. King Jesus is the one worth giving everything to. Cast everything else aside. Turn from whatever it is you're pursuing and give your heart to the one true king.